This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 16. Episode 46. This is Writing Excuses. World and plot. The only constant is change. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Dan. I'm Fonda. I'm Mary Robinette. And I'm Howard. And Fonda, the only constant is change. That's a phrase that we hear a lot. What do you mean by that? How does that relate to world building? Yeah, so oftentimes we come across fantasy worlds that feel unchanging or out of time. And I think you see this especially in portal realm fantasy, fairy tales, fables, stories that have that once upon a time kind of feel to them. And uh, we know that in our world, things are always changing. Um, Our society is constantly evolving. um, Technology is changing. Social norms are changing. And um, even though, you know, there, I, I think there's absolutely a place for those sort of timeless um, ancient, unchanging fairy tale, fable type of fantasy worlds. Uh, personally, I aim to create worlds that feel as real as possible. And part of that is making the world feel like it has a past, a present, and a future. And that the story that we're experiencing exists in a historical context. And the events of the story are also impacting what will be the status quo after you close the book on the final page. And the fact that in our world, the only constant is change intersects with the plot because plot is also about constant change, right? Each scene, each chapter is a change that is driving that story forward. Because if you finish the chapter and you're in the same place that you were at the beginning of the chapter, that chapter is not necessary. So when you have change in the world intersecting with change in the plot, you're able to heighten and reinforce both. Yeah. And um, I, I want to make sure to point out that this applies to a story of any scope. Uh, we're not suggesting that you know, even the lighthearted romantic comedy that you're writing has to fundamentally alter the entire world. That's not what this says. Uh, The world of your story might be much smaller than the entire planet, uh, but that it still needs to have that sense of past, present, and future. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we don't necessarily uh, have to be working on the scale of global change. It could be very small change and world being the uh, scope of what your character's immediate um, circumstances are it could be change in a small town, change in a high school, um, change within this uh, family. Um, and you have plot intersecting with world in that the changing world could be compl- or complicating the plot. For example, you have a romantic uh, story and you have two protagonists, but um, some element of the world changing uh, this, um, the 
industry in this town causing one of the protagonists to have to move or a war pulling one of these protagonists away. I mean, all those potential changes in the external um, environment could complicate your plot. You could also have the events of the plot acting upon the world. So there is a, um, a give and take between plot and world. Yeah. I like to, I like to think of change from the other side of the coin, which is why would things stay the same? Why does a status quo exist? Uh, there are status quos that exist literally because we don't know any better. Um, because the technology hasn't been developed. You know, in the 19th century, the status quo for traveling around town was uh, being a pedestrian or riding an animal or riding something that was being pulled by an animal. In the 20th century, we went from riding an animal or being pulled by an animal. I mean, there was railroad, obviously, but that was for longer trips. Um all the way up to the point that there were electric scooters and that there were people you could hire to take you to an airport to get on a plane. You know, that degree of change was huge and a lot of it was driven by uh, us learning things and, and, and things, uh, learning to do new things. But there's also status quo that is artificial where there is some sort of force keeping things from changing whether it's an economic force, you know, someone has something to lose if we change things in the following way, um, or, uh, or something, some structure has been built that prevents us from making the changes we want to make. Um, and then there's, you know, status quo changes that are uh, natural or, you know, huge nature sized, like, uh, was the story, series of stories, uh, Heliconia, Winter, Spring, Summer, I can't remember the name of the author, where you've got a planet that orbits twin suns, and it orbits on the outside, the complicated orbits, and they have like a 1,500-year year with hugely long seasons, and so there would be these seasonal changes where suddenly the snow begins melting, and it stays melted, and what the heck is going on? And so you, there are things that might change as a result of nature actually changing around you. The, the other piece of this is that people are going to have uneven reactions to that change, depending on where they are in culture and society. Um, so some people will embrace the change. Some people will actively fight against it. And you're going to have both of those things happening simultaneously which is part of what makes something feel vivid and alive is that not everyone is having, you know, this even reaction. When you've got a, an event, uh, whether that's the invention of a new technology or an invasion or, or, or uh, just uh, even class change, um, the events affect culture and culture affects events. Like one of the, the kind of on a, a very granular level when you're looking at, at rules uh, rules in a, a school or, or uh, laws in a society, those rules or, or, or the ones that your your own family sets, those rules, those things that get delineated are always set in response to something. You know, you, you don't have to create a rule about something uh, if you don't, aren't either afraid that someone is going to do it um, or if someone hasn't already done it. And, and often it's like, why would any sensible person 
you know, uh, there's a, you know, why do we have a rule about the number of questions that it is appropriate to ask a guest? I'm not saying that we have someone in my family that is perhaps a little too curious, but (laughs) (laughs) these are these are the kinds of things that can that can exist and can can make uh, make that sense of history because people will you can always have someone who remembers before the rule. Like I remember flying when you could go and meet someone at the uh, at the air, you know, at the the airplane door um, at the gate. And that's that is outside of memory for uh, for many of my, my my peers just because of where I was born or when I was born. Mm-hmm. There's a park just about a block away from my house um, that has a big sign posted that says no fireworks, nudity or horseback riding. And I would love to know <laughs> what event prompted the creation of that sign. Uh, but. Let's pause here. Let's get our book of the week from Fonda. So the book of the week is Blackwater Sister by Zen Cho. And I wanted to highlight this because it is a great example of a story in which the fantasy elements interact with a changing society. So it is set in um, modern day Malaysia and there are uh, ghosts and deities, um, but they are interacting with uh, greedy land developers who are potentially going to be um, destroying a temple. And uh, the way that um, that Zen Cho makes those elements interact is uh, both very it's very on point and it's also very witty and hilarious. Um, and I, I really think it's it's a good example of what we are talking about um, because uh, you know oftentimes um, there are we, we talked about uh, choosing your you know where you want to build the world in order to reinforce your themes and and Zen certainly does that because there is this um, the sense that the fantasy world the fantasy elements are not unchanging they are being affected by the real world and, and things like, like, like land development. Um, one of the reasons why I set the Greenbone Saga in an analog of late 20th century was because there were so many um, uh, forces of modernization and globalization um, that were going on at that time, um, still continuing you know, to this day, but especially like post-World War II and, and the economic boom of um, the Asian nations. And um, it intersected really nicely with one of the uh, the things that I wanted to um, bring to the forefront in that story, which is that there's, there's this magic element. And for, for a very long time, it has been the birthright of the people who live in this place and control that resource. But we, there is no way that that would be immune to technology and to economics. Um, someone would find a way uh, to, and, and they do, um, a foreign power finds a way to develop a drug so that what was once exclusive to these people is no longer exclusive. And that intersects with the plot. And that's why these clans start having conflict and going to war. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, ways that you can make your fictional world, your invented world, feel like it has a 
uh, sense of time. Yeah. So I, an example I'm going to throw out is my own book, Extreme Makeover, uh, which is set in our world, but is specifically about how that world is slowly degraded and destroyed by a new technology. It's a, a hand lotion that, that uh, overwrites DNA. And uh, I realized quickly early on that while I was telling a kind of an apocalyptic story about the end of the world, that would necessitate massive societal changes over time. And so the, my solution was to split the book into four distinct parts each of them presenting the world in a different way. And there aren't necessarily huge time jumps between each part, but it, you know, categorizing it that way gave me a chance to kind of make more obvious, this is our world today. This is the part of the world where this new technology has been invented and people are, you know, focusing on that. And then, you know, as that gets worse and worse uh, and as the world changes, those little breaks in it made it kind of easy for me to convey those changes over time. One of the tricks that I use sometimes when I'm trying to to create this sense of change is to make sure that uh, that my cast of characters are not all the same age um, for for the reasons that I've already talked about. But the other thing that I've found very, very useful um, is the the way we uh, the way we identify time, with the exception of 2020, uh, is rarely <laughs> by the year. <laughs> um, it's usually uh, it's usually something like uh, before the war, um, or uh, you know after um, you know m- mid Panini. Uh, I've heard people talking about, um, <laughs> but we 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 come up with a a catchy label for it. Um, you know, the, the uh, something, something dynasty. And one of the things that you can do to create this sense that your world is very thought through is to just have people refer to something in the past with a label instead of an, an actual date. Uh, because it, it, it also implies that, you know, I, I've used this example before that I had uh, the, the battle of the seven red armies. I'm like, I have literally no idea what this battle is. I just needed to reference something that happened in the past, like a, a far distant event. And that makes it sound like, oh, yeah, there was, you know, this this whole big culture war that went down. I don't know. I don't know what that is, but it makes yeah. my world sound richer. It's it's yeah. a shorthand <laughs> of cheap. Yeah. And that can apply to not just uh, things that happened in the past, but the sort of echo of the historical origins for names and customs and behaviors. Um, so, like, for example, uh, there's, um, in, in my story, there's these, these people who are known as lantern men, and they're sort of patrons of this clan. But the reason why they're called that has a historical origin that dates to wartime. Um, so, you know, having a, uh, having little idioms that people say to each other, um, I have placed interludes in my book that are, um, structurally a way to create a sense of history. There are these brief little, uh, looks back into myth or history, but then I bring them into the main, I, into the main narrative by having, um, them tie into, 
sayings or legends or TV shows and comic books or pop culture that the current day characters are experiencing. So there's clearly a link between what came before and uh, how that has like filtered into current day culture and, and behavior. Mm-hmm. We, we're getting, we're, we're running out of time, but one aspect of this that's in your notes, I want to make sure that we talk about is uh, diaspora. Uh, which we talked about a little bit during lunch. Uh, but I feel like the Greenbone Saga is very good at conveying uh, the concept of diaspora and the way that different cultures uh, migrate and kind of interface with and interlace into other cultures. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, that was um, an element that I very much wanted to capture in my books because um, I rarely see it depicted in fantasy novels. There's always races, different fantasy races, but um, they don't always take into account that um, people move. I mean, our whole world history is uh, so... Um, based on the migration of people. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of cross-cultural pollination and cultures mix and they change. And um, diaspora cultures are different from the culture that those people came from. Um, And that is an element of of change and time and, um, and, and history that was very important to me when I was writing those books. Uh, And, um, I wanted to make it uh, really obvious when you're reading them that these people who might be ethnically the same but have migrated to different places now feel very distinct. And yet they have also some commonalities and they're so that was a, a tricky balance to strike. Yeah, one of my favorite real world details for this is uh, the food in Peru. Uh, Peru is South American. It is very deeply steeped in the indigenous cultures and then the Spanish who arrived. But also, they have had Chinese influence in their culture for hundreds of years to the point that the traditional, like, grandma's house Sunday dinner is a stir fry in a walk. Yes. Uh, which changes, we don't tend to think about that being in a South American country, but this concept of of the way the cultures have pollinated each other is present. Uh, In the before times, Dan, you're making me hungry because I I visited (laughs) Peru and uh, and the food there was one of the highlights. Um, But they have this fried rice dish, which is called chifa. And um, I learned that it's called chifa because the Chinese immigrants who moved to Peru and started these, these restaurants um, the the Chinese word, I'm going to butcher it because I, I don't speak Mandarin fluently, is chifan, come eat. And so when they would say chifan, like that got transmuted into chifa, which is this fried rice dish. And that's oh, just like great. a little, very cool world building detail that if you can find ways to to f- create little moments like that in that in your story are just going to make your world feel so much richer and more real. I'm going to actually recommend that people who want to dive deeper into to food, because I could, we could talk about it for hours, uh, go go back and uh, check out episode 1430, Eating Your Way to Better World Building, um, which 
digs really deep into this, in, including a, a fascinating detail, which is that often a side effect of a diaspora is that the food of the people who have immigrated to somewhere else will freeze at a particular, at, at a, a cultural moment, um, the, the, the moment that they left their home country, whereas the home country will continue to to carry on and, and the, the food will continue to change, which I, I found fascinating and um, totally relevant to this conversation. But you yeah, should go listen much. to the full episode. Awesome. Um, this has been a great episode. Fonda, take us out with some homework. So the homework this week is for you to take a timeless story. So pick a fairy tale or a fable and reimagine it happening during a period of change in that society. So uh, my example would be, let's say Sleeping Beauty falls under the curse and she wakes up a hundred years later, but that kingdom has been through a socialist revolution and now the royals are in exile. How can you imagine a timeless story um, being very different as a result of the world changing? I'm going to tag onto that really fast. And then we'll let everyone go. Uh, Beauty and the Beast, the Disney film, if you look at the fashion in it, fashions in it, takes place about 10 years before the French Revolution. Yeah. Sorry, Belle. Anyway, this has been Writing Excuses. You are out of excuses. Now go write. This episode of Writing Excuses was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr. and mastered by Alex Jackson. Your hosts were Dan Wells. Fonda Lee, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. To learn more about writing excuses, visit patreon.com forward slash writing excuses. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storytellers' stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.